You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 387 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Brian Mariani. Bruno Miranda is responsible for leading Doximity's engineering teams across the areas of data, mobile, infrastructure, and web engineering. In his decade-plus tenure, Bruno has acted as lead engineer on many of the company's most important projects, having architected the earliest versions of the company's core software platform, as well as leading efforts to build out a highly resilient technology stack. Bruno has managed and grown a series of high-performing teams and is responsible for having scaled one of the company's largest organizations. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Bruno. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Bruno, I am very curious. What is your developer origin story? Oh, man, I'm really going to date myself here. So it actually started in ASCII art, believe it or not. So by accident, I was actually the recipient of an IBM XT86, a very well-used machine when I was really young. And there was nothing I could do in that computer other than just play around with the editor. And I realized that I was able to do a little bit of coding to create some ASCII art and uh, things like Christmas trees and and little drawings on the screen. And I actually had a a dot matrix printer that I could print things out. I was probably, I want to say maybe nine or 10 years old. So I spent a lot of afternoons trying to figure out how to make ASCII art complex looking Christmas trees and different drawings with just characters on the screen. And that went on for, I think, a summer, better part of a summer, which got me thinking, you know, what else can I do with this computer? Well, the short answer is with that computer, there was really nothing else I could do. But eventually I worked my way up to, I believe it was a 386 at that time that was a little bit more capable. And believe it or not, I started doing some I guess, entry-level graphic design, like designing business cards for people and printing those out and trying to sell them. I've always had a little bit of a business interest in trying to make a living out of making something. And it turned out that I think making a living out of writing software was a little bit simpler than making a living out of designing and selling my design, which wasn't very good at all. So I think the progression from then on went to just doing more development. I did a bit of Python. I did quite a bit of C and Pascal in in my early days, which led me to doing more Python and eventually Ruby and Rails. Fast forwarding about 10 to 15 years there since the beginning of the ASCII art days. What led you to try Ruby? I was doing development with Python and there was nothing really wrong with Python. But at that time, I want to say maybe 15 years ago or so, maybe a little bit less than that. I can't remember exactly the timeline, but At that time, I remember hearing about this Rails thing and this Ruby thing, and it was really interesting to see the differences between the way the Python community was thinking about web development and the way this Rails framework was using Ruby and leveraging it to build these types of convention over configuration applications and and using a framework that was capable of letting you do a lot of cool stuff really quickly. So that got me into Ruby. It got me into Rails. And I don't think I've ever looked back. As far as using Python for web development and for building web apps anyways. So it sounds like you were a developer for quite some time. And, you know, what we learned from the bio is that you have worked your way up to the VP of engineering. And to some listeners, that is just an incredible goal to get to. And so for the people who might not be familiar, what are the responsibilities of a VP of engineering? It sounds 
very fancy. It's actually not that fancy. It's awesome to be able to work with a team that's way more capable than I am at doing most of the things that have to be done in order to ship a great quality product and great quality set of products. But I think if I had to summarize into a concise statement of what a VP of engineering, at least at Doximity, what my responsibilities are, is really about staffing a team, empowering a set of teams, making sure that those teams and those people are mentored and motivated to deliver business impact and by building products that deliver on the business impact. So it does require seeing a little bit around or trying to anyway, see a little bit of around the bend, around the curve to try to figure out what is coming down the pike ahead of time, proactively thinking through what sort of team distribution, what sort of resources, what sort of staffing needs and training and mentorship needs are we going to have in the near term and the near future to be able to build what we need to build, to be able to deliver positive impacts to the business and, and positive business outcomes. So it's sort of in my level now, it's sort of an amalgamation of picking the right partners, developing the right relationships with vendors and teams, staffing, empowering and mentoring, as I mentioned, and more recently doing quite a bit of business development from a technology perspective to make sure that as a company and as a team and as a set of engineering teams, we're capable and able to deliver on these positive outcomes for the business. That makes sense. So I feel like the industry is kind of split on this, but I'm curious, as a VP of engineering, are you still an individual contributor and have you maintained continuing to be technical? A few years ago, I wrote a blog post that did mention some of the responsibilities that I felt were on the camp of a VP of engineering. And one of the things that I mentioned there was that a VP of engineering should still code. And I got a lot of flack for that just from a few friends and from the community in general saying that, oh, by the time you get to that level, you can't afford to code because you need to be delegating and you need to be able to, you know, trust the people that you have working within your team. And, and I totally agree with all of that, but I think it's important to not get super disconnected from ground zero and to be able to still remain technical. Obviously, I, or maybe not so obviously, but I've learned over the years for myself that I can't put myself in the way of any production level schedule delivery types of things. Because at the end of the day, my time right now, it's no longer my time. It's time that is dedicated to making sure that people around me and teams around me are able to get unblocked, deliver on the outcomes that I've mentioned before. So I don't necessarily have large chunks of time that I can schedule to just sit down and code. And let's be honest, engineers that are doing this day in, day out are probably going to be better and faster than I am. I've come to terms with that. But I do think that there are slivers of technical issues and technical projects that a VP of engineering should still keep close to heart to be able to stay at the ground level and to be able to stay close to the teams that are building the actual software. So some of the examples for me on that topic are just prototyping some things with new vendors, new partners, looking into APIs and ways in which we can communicate more effectively and efficiently across our teams, doing some deeper analysis on how some of the software we use today could be better leveraged, uh, taking a hard look at insights that we have about our platform and how those can be made better or how we can publish or how we can communicate around them a little bit better and just integrating with the teams. So it does take some technical know-how and it does take continuous knowledge and experience in that area. But I guess at the end of the day, the one thing that I 
keep reminding myself is that my time is no longer my time. Therefore, I can't put myself in a way of getting something into production with some small exceptions or in case there's some urgency or something's on fire and I need to just roll up my sleeves and help. It's always the most fun part of it, right? When the adrenaline is going and something needs to happen and there's a team of people that are all ready to go and I get to pitch in even minimally on it, I'm really excited. So I'm, I'm glad that I can still reserve some time to do that and, and I think to stay close to technology because honestly, that's where I started and that's what I'm really passionate about. I love that. And I resonate with it so much. So this is the Ruby on Rails podcast, and I love to hear good stories of larger companies using Rails. So I have to ask Bruno, has Doximity proven that Rails can scale? Yes, it has. We've been major proponents of Ruby and Rails since we got started. Our platform has started as a Rails application, and it's always remained as a Ruby and Rails application. We sort of kept up with Ruby and Rails as it scaled up, as well as it matured. We're running almost the latest versions of both of them in production at all times, general availability releases anyways. And we have several dozen services talking to one another inside our stack, inside of our platform. We have very popular clinician facing products that are used daily by hundreds of thousands and millions of times per month. So we've been able to show that with a little bit of work and a little bit of forward thinking, you can definitely make Ruby and Rails scale as have others, right? If you look at other companies out there that have been leveraging Ruby and Rails for longer than us, they've also been able to prove that. So we're no exception. I would say it, it does take a little bit of planning. It does take a little bit of work as most of the listeners I'm sure have either seen it firsthand, but I don't think as technologies, Ruby and Rails have limitations that are beyond our reach for most of the architectures that we're planning to build around it, especially when it comes to web applications and web products. I love that. So I'm curious with the heavy usage that you have around Ruby and Rails, does Doximity currently contribute to open source? We do. I'd say minimally, this is one of the things that I think we're a little bit behind on and something that we as a team and as a company have been trying to do more and more of. We have a few open source projects out on our GitHub account. We could be doing more. So we have one Elasticsearch, a Ruby gem called Elasticity that we use internally. And we haven't been, uh, we've maintained it, but we haven't invested a ton on it. And it's something we want to do more. Our design team has also put out a CSS framework called Vital which we also use internally and, and has gotten some adoption externally as well. And we have a few other smaller gems and, and libraries out there, but it's definitely something we want to do more of. We typically contribute back to the main trunks of libraries and, and tools that we use if we find an issue or if we have a good idea and they're willing to listen and to hear us. But we want to be able to share more of what we've built internally with the community because I think that there's some interesting stuff and we do have plans to do that. We have some interesting functionality around how we move data around internally, some data pipelining, custom tooling that we've built to facilitate sort of shipping data between our warehouse and our main data stores that I think would be interesting to release as an open source project. And then we also want to help other open source projects and sort of sponsor or try to help fund other open source projects. So we're always on the lookout for that as well. I know that you're a proponent of distributed engineering teams like myself. What are your top tips, especially for listeners who are at companies who are newly adopting the concept? 
Yeah, this is something that we as a company and myself personally, too, I'm very passionate about a truly distributed culture that doesn't, I guess, separate between those that are in a particular office and those that are distributed across the country or the world and in their homes. So if you've seen anything that I've ever talked about or, or written about, there's definitely a hint of that in there. As far as tips, I think the most important part of it is to make sure that you're treating everyone equally, regardless of where they are physically. It starts there. It starts with respect, starts with trust. And from that foundation, I think you can take care of all the other details. If I had to say, I think the second part, the most important tip that I typically share with people is making sure that team you are building is aware of the need and capable to either ramp up to it or be really good at concise, written, async communication. I can't enforce this enough. It's a really strong indicator to whether you are going to likely build a successful distributed team. If the people who are establishing the culture for a distributed team want to have in-person meetings for everything, where half the team who isn't in the office is sort of cut off from that conversation, decisions are brought back and told to those folks who are not in that meeting, hey, we talked about it in person, we decided you're not going to end up with a very good team, right? They're not going to feel like they're trusted, like they're part of the whole And you're probably not going to end up in the situation where your distributed team is effective and efficient, at least not as much as you would hope for. So I talked a little bit about making sure that everyone's treated equal. So that is really a a mindset of being remote first, right? You think of everyone as being remote, distributed, and then you think about the team as a whole, regardless of where they are. Async, written, concise communication is a strong indicator as well. I think if I had to mention one more thing is, is really... Looking to hire people who are likely to be happy, content, and strong self-managers, right? Managers of one, people who are motivated intrinsically, who understand the mission, and who are happy to do the job that they've been hired to do and to continue to excel on it, but are able to manage their own time and their own deliverables and their own impact. I think if you have those three, it's a solid foundation. Everything else is important, but I would say it's more of an icing on the cake. And rather than be prescriptive, although you know some of the, the blog posts you find out there are very prescriptive about what you have to do to be a successful distributed team, but rather than be prescriptive, I think each team needs to find their own groove and needs to build up the own internal distributed teams culture in the way that best suits them. And I think that is probably my point number four, which is create your own culture and sort of be the lead of that culture within your team. That's great. Thanks, Bruno. This is Brian checking back in. And I know some of the listeners for sure over the years who have talked to me certainly know my relationship with you guys. And and you and I go back quite a ways, I think 11 years now since you started at Doximity. And I've talked to many folks about working there and it's been a pleasure all these years and still remains so today. So I thought maybe it would even be helpful if you wouldn't mind just giving a quick like minute or two minutes on what Doximity does just to get folks up to speed. And then I can dive in with some more questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it has been a long time. It has been a a successful relationship for sure. But yeah, let's dive in. So Doximity is building workflow tools for clinicians, for physicians to make them more effective at their job. So we are building better technology tools to empower physicians in the United States to do their job better and hopefully save more lives by virtue of that. What that means is we have telemedicine tools and products. We have 
that are hugely successful and, and very popular amongst physicians. We have workflow tools, we have faxing, believe it or not, clinicians and physicians still use faxes. Probably the last of a dying breed of professions that uses faxes religiously, unfortunately. So we've built tools to empower and modern, try to modernize faxing for doctors, for example. So it's something that they can now carry in their pocket, in their iPhones, in their, in their mobile device, send and receive, sign faxes, all of that. We do scheduling. We do continuous education. We also have a medically relevant news feed. You can think of it as your LinkedIn news feed or as a Facebook news feed, except is tailored to physicians based off of a variety of factors in their profile, where they went to school, their specialty, their publications, a lot of different variation between the news that a physician needs to see quickly that pertains to their job to help them make their medical decisions more effective. And again, as I mentioned, help patients and save lives by way of that. So that's what we're in the business of. Our mission at the end of the day is really to help physicians save time so they can provide better care for patients. And we provide doctors modern communication workflow and continuous education tooling. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for getting the listeners up to speed. I've Enjoy telling that same story to many folks. And I love the mission that you guys are on. And, and as you're one of my all-time favorite clients, for sure. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports a UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, it is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. Honey Badger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. Honey Badger sends you alerts real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Head over to honeybadger.io and discover how Honey Badger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great, error-free products. So let's dive into a couple more things. You mentioned just a bit ago the ability for a developer to be self-managing. What sort of traits are you looking for there? We're organized internally within Doximity in a significantly large number of what we call delivery teams. So these teams are small, mostly independent, cross-functional teams that are able to take a need or a product or a new business idea and deliver against them. And that's why, you know, we call them delivery teams. They're composed of engineering, data, design, QA, you name it, right? All the different cross-functional needs of people to fulfill the need. I think one of the important aspects of being self-managing is the ability to join one of those teams get ownership of what you're working on and be driven towards the delivery of that positive impact for the business. So, you know, you want to know what, what are you looking for in order to make sure that someone joining those teams is capable of doing that and is going to be happy doing that. I think there's a many ways to suss that out. I think during an interview, interviews are tricky in all situations almost because you have such limited time to get as much exposure and as much data as possible. So I like to look for traits. I like to look for specific other things during the interview. So for example, someone who is self-managing typically has held jobs in which they're expected to deliver more than outputs. They're expected to deliver outcomes and impact. So I typically check for that. I try to ask questions that will lead me to understand, are they focusing on just cranking code out or are they focusing on the successful outcomes of what they're building? Other flags are having previous experience in consulting, not necessarily a must have at all, 
But it's one of the things that leads me to believe that the person has held jobs in which they've had to not only deliver on the outcomes, but also interface with stakeholders who expect some outcomes with clients who they're consulting with to provide benefit, right? At the end of the day, if you're a consultant and you're working for a company and you're not delivering, you're not self-managing, you're not able to actually execute, you're probably not going to be consulting for very long. So I, I look for that as well. Again, not a hard requirement at all, but it's one of the flags that are important. Open source contributions, people who are motivated, blogging, contributing to open source. I realize not everyone has, most of us actually don't have time to just go out and, and freely contribute to open source. But then again, it's not a requirement. It's just another differentiator in the interview process. And then I think people who focus on the delivery of things rather than just understanding the problem, people who can dissect the problem into, you know, the, the minimum viable thing that needs to be built in order to address that problem. Those are all aspects of what I think makes someone a manager of one or a self-manager. Excellent. Well said. All right, let's dive into the Doximity interview process, something I talk to developers about for many times per week. And it's one that's been really well received over the years, I have to say. One of the reasons that it is unique is that it doesn't involve any live coding, which I know a lot of engineers certainly appreciate. And again, it is a little different. But I've seen firsthand Doximity has a really high retention rate. So obviously your assessment of skills works. Can you talk about that interview process and how it works for Doximity? Yes. So we have written a little bit about this on our technology blog, but I always love talking about this because I think over the years we've developed something that isn't necessarily unique, but works really well for us. And I think it goes a long way to help with that retention. Okay. Let's face it, none of us write code with people looking over our shoulders. So expecting that to happen during an interview, it's just ludicrous, right? It doesn't bring out the best in us. So we wanted to design a process that allowed the candidate to showcase their best skills, their abilities, without being under pressure in an awkward situation, in an awkward manner, in which is not conducive to the day-to-day -day of their jobs anyways, right? And I think live coding especially if it's not pseudocoding, especially if you're expecting something to compile, to build, to work, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't know if I've ever met or talked to anyone who thinks that's a good way to go about it. So we wanted to essentially enable engineers to do their best work in their own computer, in their own home, with their own time, and to be able to showcase their skills in a way that felt very conducive to the type of work that they'd be doing at Doximity as part of a distributed team. So we have two options. The first one and one that most candidates tend to take is a take-home assignment. There's a few different assignments, but we essentially have one that is for very senior candidates who are going for positions that are going to be requiring a lot of leadership as far as technical contributions are concerned. And then we have an, another assignment that is targeted at software engineers in general. Both of these well, the, the one that is targeted at software engineers in general is very practical. So we ask that you complete the assignment by incrementing and adding a couple of different features to a Rails application that would be very likely similar to work that you'd be doing in a full-time job at Doximity anyway. So I think that lets us see how the candidate would perform in a very similar task that they would be given their first, second, third week at Doximity anyways. I mentioned there are two options. The other option is if you don't have the time, if you can't do the take-home assignment, the candidate's more than welcome to provide previous work that they've done, previous code, open source contributions, anything else that they like to link to instead. And we find that's very important because not everyone has the time to invest in a take-home assignment. 
So that's essentially how we let people showcase their best self in their previous experience and where they are, technically speaking. Once we receive the assignment, we have a rubric that we follow in order to try to stay as objective as possible. So it's important that to try to remove as much subjectivity from the assignment grading. We try to anonymize things as much as possible. We have a rubric that the reviewers, multiple reviewers are using to be able to rate the assignment. And then at the end of the day, we have a really good, strong signal if we think that the candidate is going to be able to be productive, happy, fulfilled at the job we need them to do. After that, there are two technical interviews, sometimes three, but with just two, we're usually able to end the assignment. We're able to tell pretty well whether we think that it's a good fit for the position. We do bring up the assignment during the interview process as well. It's often something that the interviewer and the candidate will discuss in length. What would you do differently if you had more time? How would you expend this to be you know, more scalable? So it kind of lets the candidate talk to us about a piece of code that they wrote that they're very familiar with and showcase how they would continue to expand upon it if they had more time, if they were asked to do more to it. So I think that combination of doing the work on their own time and then using that work during the interview process lets the candidate showcase their best skills. And it gives us a lot of insight in a process that otherwise would be just questions and answers. We found that asking people about nuances of Ruby or the Rails DSL or any sort of deep technology questions isn't a strong signal for whether they're going to be able to be a positive impactful software engineer at Doxit. So we tend to not focus on those as much and more on the practical sense of it. Excellent. Great. Well, let's say someone gets all the way through that interview process and they're hired. I'd love to discuss the proper way to onboard a new engineer and some of the steps that Doximity takes to ensure an engineer really gets off on the right foot and has a positive start to their experience there. Yeah. To me, one of the most intimidating parts of starting at a distributed team is the fact that you join and there's all these people everywhere and they're all in Slack or some other asynchronous communication tool. And it's easy to get lost, right? And when you're lost, you may feel like, I don't know if I'm underperforming, if I'm over delivering, am I working too hard? Am I working not hard enough? It, you haven't yet as a newbie in the team, you haven't yet spent enough time with the company as a whole to understand what is expected of you. So we try to focus a lot on making sure that we provide a lot of clarity to newcomers to ensure they feel comfortable, safe, and mentored throughout the process. What that looks like in practical terms is every new hire gets their own dedicated mentor as part of a three-month minimum mentorship program. So this person is your go-to for everything. Whether you have an HR question, whether you, and they'll send you the right people, whether you have a, you know, I don't know how to configure this part of the stack in my local machine. Can you help me? Whether they, you know, you don't quite know how to deploy to production. They're there for you to answer any of those questions or lead you in the right direction. I think that by far is the most important part. You definitely don't want a newcomer to sort of join a team, even if it's a small team of just a few people, because they're not going to automatically have enough understanding of what's expected of them. So we find that the individual mentorship, the one-on-one -on -one mentorship is very helpful in providing that. And the mentors are all trained to sort of know, you know, how much to lean in, how much to, to sort of let the person try to figure things out on their own. But they're constantly reassuring 
the newcomer that, hey, this is what is expected of you. This is, you know, you're doing great or you need to do a little bit more of this here and this there. So throughout the week, in those first three months, they're really hands on and helping the person succeed. The other thing we do is we couple that sort of one to one mentorship with a fairly comprehensive onboarding document that links to our internal wiki that has a lot of information on how do different teams go about different processes, what's expected of you. Literally, on if you look at most people's onboarding documents, week one, there's a list of what's expected of you, what you're expected to read, what you're expected to ramp up on. And often these documents are, are deeply customized for that newbie that's starting based on the team they're with, based on their mentor, based on what, you know, that team's technology responsibility is within the company, what they're delivering, what their goals are. So it's really creating that environment where a newbie can feel safe and comfortable that they're achieving the milestones that are expected of them. And we found that to be really informative and really successful in a way of keeping everyone in line and, and making sure that people are comfortable with what they're expected to be doing. Yeah, I've heard that firsthand from so many engineers over the past decade, really, in terms of onboarding being so successful. So that's great. All right. Could you talk about some of your favorite or some of the most popular products that your engineers have built to help doctors and nurses do their jobs more efficiently? Yeah, I think I have two that I want to touch on. One, which I've mentioned briefly, putting a fax machine in the clinician's pocket. And obviously, we're not the only company doing this, but we are the largest medical network in the United States that is providing any physician in the United States that is part of our network, this mobile fax functionality, which, believe it or not, when you need a prescription sent out to the pharmacy at 10 p.m. on a Saturday, you want a doctor that is able to do that via their mobile device rather than having to wait until the next day to get to the office or have somebody else go into the office to do it. So I'm really proud of that one. It's one of those things that seems kind of mundane to most people, but if you have any family members, any friends who are part of the healthcare system, they tell you that it's one of the biggest annoyances they have and one of the, the biggest inefficiencies of the system. And as I mentioned, our goal is really to improve inefficiencies in, in the healthcare system, which is a three and a half trillion dollar US system. So we love building all kinds of innovative tools that have real meaningful impact on, on physicians and patients' lives. The other one that I really excited about is much newer is our telemedicine offering. So we've had a sort of a, a telephone product that has been out there for, I think, three and a half, four years at this point. It's been super popular for clinicians and it essentially lets doctors connect with patients without revealing their personal cell phone. You know, we've done studies to show that it increases the quality of care by way in which the patient recognizes the phone that is making the call as the hospital phone. So instead of showing a caller ID of unknown or, or blocked, it shows the clinic's number or the hospital phone numbers. Therefore, the patient picks up, which means that more doctors are talking to more patients more often than otherwise. And that's one of the ways that we improve the quality of care there. So we've done a lot of work and that has been a very popular part of our product and very well loved by a lot of the physicians that leverage it. At the beginning of the pandemic in early last year, we added the ability to do video calls as well to the same mobile application that we have today, Doximity. And as you can imagine, we added fairly quickly in the beginning of pandemic, but as you can imagine, it became widely adopted very quickly by a lot of hospitals and clinics and physicians around the US. And it was just a very fun project to be part of, to work with engineers building it, to leverage really cool technology that is new, 
and to be able to get something up and running rather quickly. And for the entirety of the first year that we had this out there, we gave it away completely free to all U.S. healthcare practitioners because we needed to be done. We needed telemedicine to work well. There were other tools out there. There, there are many more now, but there were other tools out there that were doing it. But we, we felt like we had something really good that was good for people, that was good for U.S. healthcare, and that was good for patients. And, and we needed to make sure that everyone had access to it. We saw very quick adoption. And this goes back a little bit to the Ken Rails and Ruby scale. This was seen at first hand that it definitely can. We were able to 30x our volume overnight without a hitch. There were definitely small challenges, but we didn't go offline. We didn't have any significant downtime. We actually did it very smoothly with Ruby, with Rails and a ton of other modern technology on top. That's probably one of the product offerings that I'm most passionate about now. And I've been working very closely with those teams to making sure that we keep innovating around there and keep providing U.S physicians with the tools they need to improve patient quality of care. So as we wrap up, Bruno, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? Yeah, this is one that I'm really excited about because I think over the last couple of years has been just a general sort of underwhelming trend, I think, as far as Ruby in particular and just Rails. It's perhaps no longer the hottest thing out there for people, but I kind of tend to disagree. I think Ruby 3 is going to bring a lot of really cool stuff to the table, a lot of concurrency improvements, a lot of language improvements. And I'm really excited for Rails 7 as well. I think there's a lot of goodness in there that will hopefully bring new refreshed attention to the community and continue to fuel where it's been going. I'm also excited about some of the JavaScript simplifications and advancements that kind of go hand in hand with Rails 7. I'm looking forward to that as well. And I'm just positively surprised and proud, and I'm not even sure what feeling to describe, but just to have seen it go from you know zero to now almost Rails 7 and to sort of maintain this level of simplicity and convention of a configuration and approach to just getting stuff done is really refreshing to see. And there's not many other technologies that I can say the same about. I couldn't agree more. Bruno, how can listeners follow you? You can find me on Twitter at BRUPM. But I think more importantly than that, follow Doximity underscore tech on Twitter. That's where we tend to post new articles that are published on the blog. That's where we link back to some valuable articles that we've posted in the future. That's a great place to find us. Technology.doximity.com is the blog. And if you're curious about working at Doximity, if you want to know more about our culture, our process, we do have a culture-focused page on work at. So it's workat.doximity.com that you can find out all the details and what keeps us shining. Yeah, so I would love if your listeners can look into Doximity and consider applying and helping make the U.S. healthcare a more efficient system help make doctors more effective and at the end of the day, help save patients' lives. Well, yeah, by all means, if anyone is interested in Doximity, certainly reach out. Like I said, one of the greatest companies that I've recruited for over the past decade. Bruno, it has been a complete pleasure having you on the pod. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.